The Supreme Court refuses to rule on an FDA request to keep abortion pill safeguards in place. A group called Pro-Life Evangelicals for Biden launches to persuade Christians to slaughter more babies. The U.S. signs the Geneva Consensus Declaration with international governments to promote women's rights and health without access to abortion. And I make a case for why every Orthodox Christian ought to vote for President Trump. I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. Welcome back to the show, guys. Thanks so much for tuning in. It's great to be back in studio. I haven't been with you for a little while. Uh, recent episodes, of course, being live speaking gigs that I've been doing on the road, as well as our incredible episode from last week called How Then Shall We Vote? Life and Death on the Ballot. And that was with John Stone Street from Chuck Colson Center for Worldview, Paul Isaacs from My Faith Votes, and Scott Klusendorf and Janique Stewart from our organization, Life Training Institute. So check out that episode. We believe that it can make an electoral impact for life and for the lives of our preborn children. So share that with those in your life, especially this new breed of Christian progressives who say they're pro-life, who pay lip service to the pro-life movement and to the value of unborn children, but refuse to act politically to protect these children created in the image of God and whom it is legal to kill through all nine months of pregnancy. So really good to be back in the studio with you. Listen, we have a lot of new listeners to this podcast and show, which is really encouraging because we want you to be equipped to confidently engage the culture on behalf of those who cannot engage, speak up, or defend themselves, our preborn neighbors. So share this episode very widely and broadly as we lead into the election and give us a rating and review. Let us know what you think. It really, really helps us reach more people. People. Um, and we want this podcast, right, to show up on these platforms because of your help in putting it go up the ratings. So people who disagree with us and people in the middle will begin listening to these pro-life ideas articulated in a way that is persuasive. So the Supreme Court recently refused to protect women's health. And we continue to see this irony, don't we, within the abortion debate of people who say that they're pro-choice because they care about the health and lives of women but then refuse to support policies and laws that aren't aimed at decreasing abortion. Rather, they're just aimed at protecting the health of the very women that these people say they serve, say that they care about. And of course, this gives away the game, doesn't it? It shows that the pro-choice movement is actually not concerned with protecting the health of women. In fact, they're willing and eager often to compromise and risk harming the lives of these women and their health in order to maintain what? Abortion access. Anything that might curb women's access to abortion and therefore the ability of the abortion industry to turn massive profits on abortions, um, they will gladly attack even if it compromises the health of women. And so we're seeing this once again. And the Supreme Court is just has become just so important right now, more important than maybe since Planned Parenthood v. Casey, which unfortunately went the wrong way and was a big setback for the pro-life movement. So Live Action News reports on October 9th um, that the Supreme Court refused to rule on this uh, ruling from a U.S. district judge, court judge, that was from a lawsuit from abortion rights groups. And this district court judge said that the FDA must be prevented from upholding their safety regulations. What are these safety regulations? Well, we've covered this before, but if you're a new listener to the show, the FDA has safety regulations called REMS, Risk Evaluation and Mitigation Strategy. 
And these safety regulations are put in place on the sale of the abortion pill, okay, the medication abortion, right? If, and if you don't know, listen to past episodes, but it's a two-regimen pill, mifepristone and misoprostol. The first pill blocks the hormone progesterone, which is necessary to maintain the lining of the uterus. Without progesterone, the lining of the uterus breaks down. Nutrients is cut off to the child. The child starves to death. Then you take misoprostol a couple days later, and that forces your uterus to have contractions, and you basically dump your child into the toilet, and the abortion pill is taken through 10 weeks. That's the abortion pill, okay? Well, when Bill Clinton became president, within his first week, he brought the abortion pill to the U.S. market. Since then, or shortly after, the FDA had these safety regulations in place. These safety regulations, in part, required an in-person evaluation, okay, an in-person evaluation with a physician before getting the abortion pill. Why are these in-person evaluations important as a part of the FDA safety regulations? Because the physician performs an ultrasound. They perform an ultrasound on a woman who is pregnant before they give her the abortion pill in order to do two things, to rule out ectopic pregnancies and to diagnose the gestational age of the pregnancy, the baby. They perform this ultrasound to rule out ectopic pregnancies because if the baby implants in the fallopian tube and that pregnancy continues, mom can die because the fallopian tube will burst. If you take the abortion pill while you have an ectopic pregnancy, you could also be risking your own life. The mom can die from that. But how can the FDA and abortion rights groups know that the woman has an ectopic pregnancy if they remove the safety regulations that would require her to come in and get an ultrasound to rule out ectopic pregnancies or to diagnose it? Of course, the abortion rights movement has no answer to this question because they don't care about the health of women. The second reason for that ultrasound in the in-person evaluation is to diagnose the gestational age of the pregnancy of the baby. Because I talk to pro-life OBGYNs all the time. We had one on the show recently, Dr. Brent Bowles in Nashville. And we're frequently told that women misdiagnose the age of their pregnancy between anywhere to two to six weeks. That's fairly common. So if a woman thinks she's 12, I'm sorry, if she thinks she's eight or nine weeks pregnant, but she's really 13 or 14 and she takes the abortion pill, that can lead to incomplete abortions because she's taking the abortion pill past the age of the pregnancy that she's supposed to. And incomplete abortions can lead to infection for the mother and sometimes death if left unaddressed. Okay, so do you see the safety reasons for why these safety precautions are in place? But according to Live Action News, this summer, U.S. District Judge Theodore Huang issued an injunction against an FDA safety requirement, which mandated that women obtain the first pill of the abortion pill regimen in a provider's facility, right? What we just said. The Trump administration quickly petitioned the Supreme Court to have the injunction lifted. In its ruling, the Supreme Court refused to either grant or deny the administration's request. So this is silly. This is cowardice. Of course, the Supreme Court should rule in because these regulations are not even prevented to decrease abortions. They're simply intended to protect the health of women. Huang's injunction was put into place for an open-ended period of time, so the Supreme Court ordered him to promptly consider withdrawing or amending his injunction within 40 days based on any possible changes in circumstances ostensibly involving the pandemic. So for the time being, at least, they have a period of time where they can continue forcing the FDA to not enforce their safety regulations. This will lead to more dead children and more harmed women. And this is important, right? This is so important because this is the new horizon of the abortion industry. Make no mistake. The abortion industry understands that there is a massive financial incentive to push the abortion pill because the abortion pill is taken in the first trimester, right? Almost through the, the whole first trimester. The first trimester would be 12 weeks and the abortion pill is taken through 10 weeks. 
And we know, according to the Guttmacher Institute, Planned Parenthood Statistical Research Branch, over 90% of abortions are performed in the first trimester. Whoa. So there's a lot of money to be made in killing babies in the first trimester. The abortion pill is increasingly being used in the first trimester. According to Guttmacher Institute, in 2017, 39% of abortions were medication abortions. The abortion pill. Do you see? This is their push right now. And because many pro-life states have been successful in passing pro-life laws that have made it more difficult for brick-and-mortar abortion clinics to remain open and killing children, and because it's more expensive to run brick-and-mortar abortion clinics, the abortion industry knows they can cut out a bunch of costs while pushing an abortion pill that's cheap to manufacture and easy to sell at high margins. Think about all the costs involved in a brick-and-mortar abortion clinic. The building, the lease, the staff. Many states don't have very many abortionists, so sometimes they fly one or two abortionists all around the state to kill babies all month long. Well, the abortion pill doesn't require an abortionist, right? Think about the third-party vendors you have to pay to come in with hazardous waste containers to dump the limbs of children that you aborted and to ship them away. There's all these costs involved with running an abortion clinic. With the abortion pill, all that's gone, you see? They can just push the abortion pill, and now they're pushing for telemedicine abortions to ship it straight to women's mailboxes because they can do it because this district judge is not requiring the FDA, is actually telling the FDA they can't endorse or require their safety regulations, which tell women to come in for an in-person evaluation first, okay? Massive profit potential for the abortion industry to do this. And just like the left is using these shutdowns in COVID-19 for a political power grab, the abortion industry is doing the same thing for a financial and abortion power grab. Make no mistake, when these shutdowns lift and COVID is not this public health crisis that they're saying it is, the abortion industry is not going to settle or be happy with the FDA reinstituting their safety regulations. They're going to argue that this is the new normal. Women need this. They're going to argue, as they have already, that it's an undue burden to require women to what? to go to an in-person evaluation with one physician to get in it to make sure that she doesn't have an ectopic pregnancy or that her baby's not older than 10 weeks. They say that that's an undue burden. So therefore, we should harm women's health and lives by sending abortion pills directly to their mailbox. And they're going to continue pushing for the right to do that with telemedicine abortions even after the FDA tries to reinsert, reinstate their safety regulations. And this is this, of course, strikes right to the heart of the importance of the Supreme Court right now and confirming Amy Coney Barrett, right? And then getting another Supreme Court justice in Trump's hopefully second term that will be conservative or that will recognize the only job of judges to interpret the Constitution, not to read their political philosophy into our founding documents in order to legislate from the bench and remove the democratic will of a free people. That's what we need, and that's why it's so important. We must fight the culture wars. We must fight the policy wars. That's very important for the posterity of our country. But we must also engage in the judicial war to get the judges who hold a belief in their only job description onto the court who will protect the life, liberty, and property of American citizens. And of course, that must include our pre-born neighbors. So big bummer, big bummer that the Supreme Court is refusing to rule on this politically incentivized attempt to remove all safety regulations for women seeking the abortion pill so that the abortion industry can triple their profits 
in sending the abortion pill all around the country, getting women to abort their children in the first trimester when they don't have to come into brick and mortar abortion clinics. Okay, so next we're going to talk about this new group. They're called uh, Fiscal Conservatives for Karl Marx. Uh, oh, no, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. They're called Pro-Life Evangelicals for Biden. I'm sorry, Freudian slip. The Pro-Life Evangelicals for Biden is a new group that says that they're Christians. They love Jesus. They believe in the dignity of unborn children, but we should vote to kill more unborn children by voting for the most radical pro-abortion political ticket in American history, Kamala Harris and Joe Biden. So here is their website page, uh, Pro-Life Evangelicals for Biden. Um, We're going to read you some of the names of these people, and then we're going to go through their verbiage, okay, their language, how they defend their indefensible position that Christians who believe that babies are valuable in the womb ought to vote for the party whose platform includes targeting and expanding the slaughter and profiting off of the slaughter of those preborn children in the womb. Hmm, very interesting. So uh, here it says, join the movement. Uh, join Richard Mao, President Emeritus of Fuller Seminary. John Huffman, Board Chair Emeritus Emeritus uh, Christianity Today. I apologize if I'm mispronouncing that. Jerusa Duford, Billy Graham's granddaughter. Oh, wonderful. Ron Snyder, President Emeritus Evangelicals for Social Action, Brenda Salter McNeil, Reconciler, Professor, Pastor, Richard Foster, author of Celebration of Discipline, and others in signing this statement. That is a real bummer. My parents and a lot of our church read Richard Foster's books growing up. His Celebration of Discipline was quite a seminal celebrated work, and apparently now he is just a fetal bigot who wants to kill babies created in the image of the prenatal Christ. Lovely. The website goes on, as pro-life evangelicals, we disagree with Vice President Biden and the Democratic platform on the issue of abortion, but we believe a biblically shaped commitment to the sanctity of human life compels us to a consistent ethic of life that affirms the sanctity of human life from beginning to end, from womb to tomb, right? Here we go. Ah, yes, the redefinition of pro-life. Go back and listen to my debate with Michael W. Austin, a professor of philosophy at Eastern Kentucky University called What Does It Mean to Be Pro-Life? A pro-life versus whole life debate. And you're going to get a fire hose of information related to this very silly debate within American evangelicalism. And this is coming from people who want to redefine what pro-life means. They call themselves consistent life ethics, like they hold a consistent life ethic or whole life proponents is what they call themselves. And they insist that the pro-life movement must apply their beliefs to more than just abortion. They insist that the only way for your pro-life credentials to be credible is if you're doing something to end every other form of injustice or support policies that the left loves. That's what they insist. They insist that protection of life in the womb is morally equivalent to quality of life outside the womb. And so if you don't support the policies that woke progressive leftists like these men support, which they claim improves quality of life outside the womb, then you're not really even pro-life at all. And any claim to the contrary is just evidence of your hypocrisy. That's who these people are, okay? That's what it means to be whole life. Now, of course, it's worth pointing out that this critique that pro-lifers aren't really pro-life because they're only focusing on ending abortion and they're not speaking out against or seeking to end other injustices, that critique, it's worth pointing out that that critique is only levied against the pro-life movement, right? Who tells the American Cancer Society that they're not really anti-cancer because they only seek to solve one form of disease and not many? Who tells Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass that they're not really anti-slavery because they only focus on abolishing one form of evil and not many? Who tells the, I don't know, anti-sex trafficking movement that they're not really anti-sex trafficking? They're not really for protecting and saving children and women victimized by sex trafficking because 
what are they doing to ensure reproductive health care, um, equal pay, universal health care, and universal basic income to women who are saved from sex trafficking, right? It's ridiculous. We understand that it's good to have movements and organizations with a narrowly focused goal, a narrowly focused strategy, because then they will increase the likelihood that they accomplish their goal, right? He who fights everywhere fights nowhere. It's good to be focused on one thing. So it's worth pointing out only the pro-life movement gets this critique. Okay, so these people are not our friends. They're not really pro-life. They don't understand what it means to be pro-life. And they don't actually believe the unborn child is as valuable as the born people that they claim to love and serve. Because otherwise, they would support enshrining legal protections for the unborn. They continue on this ridiculous website. They say, many things that good political decisions could change destroy persons created in the image of God and violate the sanctity of human life. Poverty kills millions every year. So does lack of health care and smoking. Racism kills. Unless we quickly make major changes, devastating climate change will kill tens of millions. By the way, there's no evidence for that. Poverty, lack of accessible health care services, smoking, racism, and climate change are all pro-life issues. Notice, notice the redefinition of pro-life right there, okay? They're saying that ending smoking, providing better health care, uh, fighting racism, even though there's no racist policies on the book except affirmative action, with dis which disadvantages white people and Asian, pe Asian people, and climate change are all pro-life issues. What if we said accessible health care, smoking, racism, and climate change are all abolitionist issues? What? That would be stupid to say. Because we understand the abolitionist movement was built around ending slavery, and it was a good thing that they just focused on that. So notice the redefinition of pro-life. They continue and says, as the National Association of Evangelicals official public policy document insists, faithful evangelical civic engagement and witness must champion a biblically balanced agenda. Therefore, we oppose one-issue political thinking because it lacks biblical balance. Do you really think these people would say that they oppose one-issue political thinking? on slavery in the 1850s? No, nobody thinks that, do they? In fact, these same woke progressives are often, uh, are often frequently ripping Christians in the 1850s for voting for the Democratic Party because we understood that the Democratic Party was the party of slavery and a vote for that party was a vote for slavery. These same woke progressives who say they won't vote single issue to protect the pre-born often ripped Christians in the 1850s who didn't vote for the Democratic Party but refused to vote at all. They just opted out of the political process. And people like these people and other people like Tim Keller will tell those Christians that they were complicit in supporting the social status quo, which was slavery. They'll say that to not be political is to be political because there's no such thing as moral neutrality on the question of slavery. If you weren't using your political voice to end slavery, you were aiding and abetting the institution itself and those who were profiting off of the enslavement of black human beings. Notice the inconsistency when it comes to abortion, far from making the same critique of themselves or other Christians who refuse to act politically to protect the preborn, they actually say, no, you can actually vote for the party who slaughters babies and profits, profits off of their dismemberment and targets pro-lifers who seek to protect the preborn because I won't be a single issue voter. So what does that tell you about their philosophy and their position? That any lip service they pay to the pro-life movement or unborn children is BS. They do not believe these children are equally valuable to all other forms of born life. And they do not believe these children deserve legal protections. These Christians who say that they believe in the image of God and in human dignity, right, and in 
a savior who entered human history in a womb will refuse to politically protect children who were created in the image of the prenatal Christ. I guess according to them, ready? I guess according to them, we shouldn't have been single issue voters on preventing Mary from aborting the prenatal Christ if Roe versus Wade was enforced in the first century. Lovely. These people are not our friends. In fact, they're the enemies of the preborn. And they misunderstand why abortion is evil. Okay, you see how they conflate abortion with poverty, healthcare, smoking, racism. Do you see them conflating these issues? Actually, far from conflating them, they're actually elevating these other issues above abortion, right? Because they say that savable babies should be sacrificed on the altar of improving quality of life outside the womb for all the other issues that they've mentioned. But they misunderstand that abortion is an intrinsic evil. What does that mean? It means abortion is evil in and of itself right? Like beating your wife or like slavery or like sex trafficking. These things are evil in the very action that they commit. For example, poverty, however, might be a contingent evil, right? Poverty might be a result of other moral evils, but poverty in and of itself is not a moral evil, right? I don't think any of us, any of you listening to this would walk up to a poor homeless man and say, you're sinning, you're, you're morally evil, That would be wrong because poverty or homelessness are not moral evils in and of themselves. They're not intrinsic evils. Maybe they're contingent evils or they're the result of other moral evils. But they conflate these two, right? So they're telling us to abandon ending intrinsic evils in order to prevent contingent evils like war, like poverty, like lack of health care or like climate change. These things all might be contingent evils that might be a result of other moral evils, but they're not in and of themselves intrinsic evils. Does that make sense? So they're telling us to avoid ending the intrinsic evil of abortion in order to avoid contingent evils. And that's uh, that's wrong, right? So they conflate quality of life outside the womb with with protection of life inside the womb and then tell us that quality of life outside the womb is more important than protection of life inside the womb. But that's ridiculous because the right to life is the most fundamental right. If you don't have the right to life, you don't have any other rights. How can we expect a government that ignores the natural right to life to 1 million humans a year? How can we expect that government to protect any other right that flows from the first and most important of all rights? Of course, we can't trust them to protect that. And that's why governors right now and mayors across the country through their draconian policies are ignoring the natural rights to liberty, telling people they don't have the liberty to work, to freely associate where they choose or to run their businesses according to their best judgment. They're telling them they don't have the natural right to property. They're telling them that we're not going to allow the police to protect your businesses against the theft, looting and burning of people who hate America. So, yeah, of course, they're ignoring the natural right to liberty and property because in 1973, they ignored the natural right to life and said that the most fundamental right, the first one upon which this republic was built, can actually be denied to human beings in a womb designed to hold them, in a womb that Christ entered human history in. Ridiculous. Quality of life outside the womb is not morally equivalent to protection of life in the womb. They continue, knowing that the most common reason women give for abortion is the financial difficulty of another child— 
We appreciate a number of Democratic proposals that would significantly alleviate that financial burden. And then they tell us what those uh, the alleviation of those financial burdens would be accessible health services for all citizens, affordable child care, a minimum wage that lifts that lifts workers out of poverty. So they're saying that we need to support the Democratic Party, the party of abortion, which kills a million babies a year and forces you to fund it with your tax dollars, because those same people that kill babies in the womb, they're going to provide free checks. They're going to hand out, uh, you know, welfare checks and they're going to support individuals in other ways affordable childcare, a minimum wage. They're going to focus on improving quality of life outside the womb while denying the protection of life in the womb. And by the way, it's worth pointing out that as conservatives, right, if you know your history, you understand that big government intervention, while they pontificate about caring for the little guy, actually never helps the little guy, right? The Great Society, right, shortly after the Civil Rights Movement. That actually harmed black America significantly because it was incentivizing the breakdown of the family. It was saying to black uh, women that if there was not a father in the home, they could get on welfare and get free money, right? So that incentivized fathers leaving the home. So while black families had roughly an 84% marriage rate where they were raising children mothered and fathered by their biological parents, went from 85% to under 27% with, in the 90s because the government stepped in, pretended to care about the little guy, improved quality of life outside the womb, and actually harmed it. So usually government intervention in pretending to improve quality of life outside the womb never helps those that it claims to help in the first place. So no, these Democrat proposals would not significantly alleviate those financial burdens. It would just incentivize people not working or relying on the government teat. But look again, look at how they treat the value of unborn children. They're willing to pitch those children in the trash and vote for their dismemberment in order to provide a greater minimum wage. Anyone that says that children should be sacrificed on the altar of money are not leaders that we should be following. And if they're pastors or Christian leaders, they ought to step down from any position of influence. So this article goes on from Pro-Life Evangelicals for Biden. And they say, for these reasons, we believe that uh, on balance, Joe Biden's policies are more consistent with the biblically shaped ethic of life than those of Donald Trump. Therefore, even as we continue to urge different policies on abortion, we urge evangelicals to elect Joe Biden as president. Okay, listen, you can't tell your neighbor you love them while also telling them it should be legal to kill them. Imagine for a second if pro-life evangelicals for Biden were really um, Christian abolitionists for Stephen Douglas, you know, who ran against Abraham Lincoln and wanted to give each state the right to determine whether they would purchase black human beings and treat them like cattle or not. How ridiculous would that be? Christian abolitionists for Stephen Douglas, right? Fiscal conservatives for Karl Marx, pro-life evangelicals for Joe Biden. Ridiculous. These people are not our friends. They're not the friends of the unborn, and they're not pro-life. Anything they say to the contrary is only said in order to get you to respect them and achieve political accolades so that they can claim that they have a consistent life ethic while they demand that unborn children should not be protected in our laws. Imagine saying in the 1850s, as a Christian, that you were opposed to racism, you were opposed to slavery, you were opposed to lynching, you didn't like those things. Imagine saying, I love my black brothers and sisters, but I don't think we should vote to make lynchings illegal. 
You see, because the Democratic Party, the party of slavery in 1850, see, they do a really good job of providing social welfare programs for poor white people who don't own plantations and aren't rich enough to enslave black human beings. See, we're voting for the Democratic Party because even though they say that lynchings are legal, and believe me, I really love my black brothers and sisters, the Democratic Party is going to do a better job at providing a minimum wage for uh, poor middle-class white families um, who live in uh, cities where they don't have access to good health care and schools for their children. Anyone who said that would be a morally bankrupt evil person who should be who should be immediately disregarded by the church and the institution predisposed to protect children because we believe they're created in the image of God. So notice their selective treatment of the single-issue voting critique that they would never apply on the issue of abortion. So those is these are the pro-life evangelicals for Biden. I believe they deserved a very lengthy uh, slap across the head because this is becoming very popular. And they're convincing a lot of people to adopt this ridiculous premise. And it's going to lead to apathy and it's going to lead to more slaughtered children as the church abandons their first and most there's the second most important commandment to love our neighbor and votes to kill our neighbor and fund it with our tax dollars. So you can utterly discount pro-life evangelicals for Biden and simply ask your friends who support this type of position if they would say the same thing about fiscal conservatives for Karl Marx or Christian abolitionists for Stephen Douglas. Okay, next we're going to get to the U.S. signing the Geneva Consensus Declaration, and then I'm going to give you a Christian case for voting for Trump. But first, if you like this show and want to hear more great content and commentary from the front lines of the abortion wars, then consider becoming a patron of the show by going to patreon.com forward slash unaborted. We have nine tiers on there and each of those tiers gives you different perks, just fun incentives for you as a thank you for supporting the show and gives you more pro-life content, more access to me through live video chats, through a video chat small group. You get a request, a certain video that you want me to do a pro-life response to. Uh, you get into our exclusive Facebook uh, group called We Are All Unaborted and lots more. So that's going to help us expand the reach of the show. I'm also going to be launching a series of pro-life videos soon. Very short, four minutes, very punchy, very viral friendly, responding to a whole host of arguments for abortion. And we're going to try to get those to go viral on Facebook and YouTube. And your support helps us uh, afford the costs associated with creating that content. So go to patreon.com forward slash unaborted. Consider becoming a patron of the show. And we'll be right back with a whole lot more. Welcome back to the show. So very good news recently on October 22nd, according to The Guardian, the U.S. signs the Geneva's, Geneva Consensus Declaration. According to The Guardian, this is part of a campaign by the Trump administration to reorient U.S. foreign policy in a more socially conservative direction. Hey, I'm on board with that. Um, but it particularly has a, a pro-life goal in mind. According to The Guardian, on October 22nd, they report that the U.S. has today signed an anti-abortion declaration with a group of about 30 largely illiberal or authoritarian governments after the failure of an effort to expand the conservative coalition. The Geneva Consensus Declaration calls on states to promote women's rights and health, but without access to abortion, and is part of a campaign by the Trump administration, led by Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, to reorient U.S. foreign policy in a more socially conservative direction, even at the expense of alienating traditional Western allies. Okay, so 
the way that the Guardian is going to report on this, of course, um, because they are a further left organization, is to make it sound like a really bad thing, right? Alienating Western allies and and in you know not including women's rights to abortion. But listen, anything that promotes life domestically or abroad is a very good thing, particularly if you can get other countries on it, um, especially if those countries are already on board with abortion. The article continues, under President Trump's leadership, the United States has defended the dignity of human life everywhere and always, Pompeo said. He has done it like no other president in history. We have mounted an unprecedented defense of the unborn abroad. In the declaration, the signatories write, quote, reaffirm that there is no international right to abortion nor any international obligation on the part of states to finance or facilitate abortion. And of course, the United States previously under democratic administrations has uh, been behind the Mexico City policy, for example, which did send foreign aid to fund abortions overseas. That's a very good thing that President Trump rescinded that, by the way, I think in his first week or first two weeks of becoming president in 2016. So this is a very, very good thing. Anything that promotes life and gets other countries on board with decreasing abortions, protecting the unborn, and not funding abortions is going to lead to more pre-born children being spared from dismemberment and being born and given the chance of life. So this is a very good thing, and it's just another example of how pro-life this administration has been and why Christians should vote to re-elect President Donald Trump to continue protecting life. Anything that restricts abortion worldwide and promotes the life and dignity of the unborn child is a win. So this is really good news. And why is that? Because the right to life is foundational to all other rights. So even though these more authoritarian countries are on board with this um, declaration, that's actually a good thing. Because is if you don't get the right to life right, you won't get any other rights right. Right? <laughs> so if you can get countries, even if they do deny or attack other natural rights, to acknowledge the natural right to life of children in the womb, that's a good win. And that could lead to other natural rights being promoted and expanded within these regimes as well. That's a really good thing. So just uh, uh, just some really good news from this administration as we get very close to the election and whether our country is going to continue going in the way of life, liberty, property, pursuit of happiness, or going significantly back and uh, stunting the progress of the pro-life movement and overturning many of their accomplishments. So um, good news on that front. Okay, next, uh, we're going to cover a new segment of this show that I announced a few weeks ago called the 60-second pro-lifer, okay? And we're going to be releasing these one-minute segments on Facebook and YouTube, where I just take 60 seconds and I re respond to an argument for abortion. And then you'll have a little compilation of these, okay? Oh, they're on Instagram as well, um, so that you can go to these and get your, your, uh, your, you know, quick reply to all of these various arguments. So today, the pro-choice argument we're going to respond to is the pro-choice argument from privacy, right? The argument goes something like this. Women have the private right to make private reproductive familial decisions for themselves. The state, the government, or religiously um, incentivized pro-lifers shouldn't be imposing in a woman or family's private family decisions, right? That's how they pitch their, uh, their position. And of course, the left insists that um, the constitutional right to abortion, it's actually in the privacy clause, right? Women should have that private right. So it kind of fits into this constitutional right to an abortion as well. So I'm going to do my 60-second timer and give you this response. 
So pro-choice advocates insist that the right to abortion is a privacy right that pro-lifers, religious people, or the government shouldn't be intruding in. That's her private right. How dare you tell a woman and enter into those private conversations with her family or her husband or her partner that she doesn't have the right to decide how many children she wants? Okay, here's how pro-lifers respond. We ask them, should we allow mothers to kill their toddlers as long as they do so in the privacy of their own homes? <laughs> and the pro-choicer says, no, of course not. You can't kill toddlers. Why? Because they're humans. You can't kill humans in the privacy of your own homes. Ah, so the issue is not privacy. The issue is the humanity of the toddler. So the humanity that the pro-choicer is granting to the toddler, in my counterexample, they're denying that humanity to the unborn child in their argument for abortion. So the issue is not privacy. The issue is what is the unborn. And the science says they're a distinct living and whole human being from the moment of conception. And therefore, there is no privacy right to kill your own unborn children any more than there is to kill your toddlers. There you go. So that's our 60-second reply for the 60-second pro-lifer on the pro-choice argument from privacy. All right, next we're going to get to my case for why I believe every Orthodox Christian ought to vote for President Trump. And that, of course, has to do with the life issue. I can make a defense on many other policies and successes of this administration, but we're going to stick to life because that's what I'm about. That's what this podcast is about. And that's the most foundational, fundamental right. So I want you to consider this analogy, okay? This is an analogy that my boss at Life Training Institute and mentor Scott Klusendorf has used to sort of winsomely communicate why it's unacceptable for those who say they're pro-life and Christian to vote for a party or a politician running for president like Joe Biden, um, why it would be wrong to vote for them given their position on abortion. So consider this analogy um, as it pertains to Christian civic duty to vote. He says, you're walking down the street and you walk by a daycare center that is on fire. There are two men who have also just strolled up to the location. One is loud and brash and well-known for speaking his mind in ways that are not always kind and are frequently obnoxious. He wants to run in with you to help rescue as many children as can be saved. The other is more pleasant to people in a superficial way, more likable, and he never tweets mean things. He refuses to help save the children and has a can of gasoline he intends to throw into the building. Who is the better man? Who deserves some level of respect and deserves your vote? There you go. Now, this is a legitimate comparison, right? It really is. Because one administration and politician is going to almost quite literally, okay, <laughs> figuratively though, throw gasoline onto the abortion industry. Because Kamala Harris and Joe Biden have told us what they would do with political power. And we've covered this in my talks recently and in, and in previous podcast episodes on Kamala and on Joe, that they will overturn the Hyde Amendment, which is keeps federal dollars from funding abortion through Medicaid reimbursements and is responsible for saving over 2 million babies since it was instituted. They will codify Roe v. Wade into federal law so states can't pass pro-life laws. They'll institute pre-clearance guidelines so that they'll sit in the Oval Office and look at pro-life laws coming out of pro-life states and say, hmm, let me read this. Uh, not uh, denied because it's not pre-cleared by our, our administration. So that d destroys federalism and the entire constitutional republic that puts power into the hands of the people and local governance. They will also make D.C. a state and add two more Democratic senators and probably a permanent majority in the Senate. They will overturn the filibuster to keep those pesky pro-life Republicans from blocking them from passing radical abortion legislation, okay? And they will increase the tax funding to Planned Parenthood by the millions. Let me let me translate that all for you. That's gasoline on the on the fire of the abortion industry, okay? And millions of more children will be killed and rounded up for slaughter like any other time in American history. It's not an overstatement to say that unborn, ch that 
the Kamala Harris Joe Biden political ticket is to the unborn child what Hitler was to the Jews and they will be killed like in, like no other time in American history. So I think this is really a legitimate comparison. And those who say otherwise simply don't believe the unborn child to be fully hu- human, right? Fully persons with equal rights because if they did, they would support the same political solutions to protect the unborn as they would to protect children in a burning daycare location. Or imagine if this more pleasant person who's about to throw gasoline on the fire of the burning daycare actually is promising to also legalize burning down daycares. Obviously, that would be unacceptable. So these people are not possessed, as as Hadley Ark says, of a lively sense that there are real human beings getting killed in these surgeries. The better man would obviously be the person who's brash, loud, and tweets mean things, but is ready to run into the daycare to rescue children. And politically speaking, that is President Trump, because he's the most pro-life president in American history, more policies to protect the unborn than any other president in American history, even more so than Reagan, and certainly more so than George W. Bush, who regularly fell far short of what he should have been doing for the pre-born. So the question becomes, How would or should Christians have voted in the 1850s during slavery? Again, I'm speaking to the Christian, okay? The Christian voter, the person who says they don't like abortion, that they're personally pro-life, but are refusing to protect the pre-born in our laws or to vote to protect them. And these people would, of course, insist that we should um, put aside our dislike of any Republican politicians' personalities if they were guaranteeing to protect the slave and slavery and re-enshrine their legal protections. Why should it be any different with abortion? Of course, it shouldn't be. Consider another example. What if Abraham Lincoln had actually been President Trump? What if President Trump was Abraham Lincoln in the 1850s with all of his same flaws that our Christian brothers and sisters hate? He was the same man, except he was in 1850 and promising to end slavery. Would you be able to vote for him? Of course. In fact, these woke progressives would insist it would have been a moral duty to do so because slavery was the greatest stain on our nation. And now abortion is the greatest stain on our nation because it's wrong for the same reasons. In each circumstance, image bearers of God are denied personhood while one party legalizes their slaughter and forces us to fund the slaughter of these innocent human beings. So would you have not voted for President Trump in the 1850s because you don't like his tweets and he personally offends you? Refusing to protect innocent human life from unjust slaughter because your feelings are hurt and you take personal offense at the person committed to protecting those innocents is immature and childish. We need to grow up a little bit. We need to learn how to walk and chew gum at the same time. These individuals running for office are not Lone individuals, they're not an island. They represent thousands of people within their administration and hundreds and hundreds of policies. We need to begin recognizing what we're voting for and what we're voting against. We're not voting for Jesus. As Jack Hibbs says, Jesus Christ isn't going to fly in on Air Force One. (laughs) There is no perfect candidate. We're voting for a flawed candidate either way. And as Christians, we understand God uses flawed people all the time. Many times those people don't even acknowledge Christ. They don't even claim to serve God. Look at Nebuchadnezzar in the Old Testament, right? Now, he pivoted, luckily, and protect Daniel after Daniel wasn't eaten by the lions. But Nebuchadnezzar was no friend of God, but God used him. What about men of God who are deeply flawed? Samson. Caught in bed twice with prostitutes, and yet he's in the hall of faith in Hebrews. King David, sleeping around, impregnating women, and then murdering their husbands. A man after God's own heart. So God can use anyone. 
So when we're choosing between politicians, we're choosing between 3,000 other people that come with that administration who will all have the same political philosophy as the presidential candidate and all of the policies that come with that. And we know the policies that will come with the Democratic administration that will endanger and kill unborn children like no other time in American history and target pro-lifers who seek to protect them. Don't forget that right when we were voting on Hillary Clinton or President Trump, the Obama administration was trying to force pro-life pregnancy centers to advertise abortion clinics and refer women for abortions. <laughs> Unreal. Attacking pro-life people, Kamala Harris, who was attorney general in California, was trying to jail pro-life investigative journalists for exposing that Planned Parenthood was illegally selling dead baby body parts on the black market, breaking federal law. And instead, she tried to jail the whistleblowers. So pro-lifers are going to be targeted. Babies will be targeted like no other time in American history. And of course, we could go into how the Democratic Party hates Christians. They want to force nuns to fund uh, uh abortions or abortion-inducing drugs or birth control pills in their healthcare plans. I mean, these people are not the friends of Christians, and they're clearly not the friends of the unborn. We need to wake up to these political realities as Christians. So what is the Christian's political duty? What is our civic duty? It's to vote to promote righteousness and restrain evil insofar as we can, given current political realities, because no party and no individual is going to be perfect. So we pick the lesser of two evils. And if the lesser of those two evils actually comes with a lot of good, like protecting the life of babies, the conscience rights of healthcare workers, the religious freedoms of Christians, the right to liberty and property of American citizens, then we should do that. That's the right thing to do, right? James tells us that whoever knows the right thing to do but fails to do it, for him it is sin. So if we have the ability within a political system that gives power to the people to use that vote to protect innocent human beings from being unjustly dismembered in their mother's wombs, we should do that. That is the right thing to do. And if we vote for the very party committed to expanding the slaughter of God's image bearers in a womb that he entered human history in, then we are in sin. This is the most unique republic in the history of the world where we the people have political power. So we have a greater civic duty to use that power in such a way that protects the innocent. Greatest commands in scripture to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. In fact, Christ says that loving others is so important to him that whatever what whatever you did for the least of these, you did for me, Christ says. <laughs> so, or and then whatever you didn't do for the least of these, you didn't do for me, right? That's how important loving others is to Christ. So if you're a quote unquote pro-life Christian, but you target the unborn for dismemberment through your vote, Christ says you're actually doing that to him. These children are created in the image of the prenatal Christ. Christ entered human history in a womb. And the first human being to recognize Christ was an unborn child, the prenatal John the Baptist, who was doing backflips in the womb when Mary walks into the room pregnant with the prenatal Christ. How is this lost on our progressive brothers and sisters? Look at the deterioration of all of our other natural rights that have occurred since 1973 when we denied the natural right to life. They've all began to deteriorate in a way unlike any other time in American history, of course, except the attacks on natural right and slavery. But even then, we had far more rights that flow from those rights like liberty and property. Of course, those were denied to blacks, but we self-corrected. And now we're doing the same thing to the unborn and all of our other rights are starting to be compromised as well. The Democratic Party is telling us that they're going to basically ruin every American institution. They're promising to pack the courts, expand the size of the Supreme Court, get rid of the filibuster, right? This is what they want to do to the freest country in America so that they can get more political power. And one of the things they're going to do with that political power is further attack the unborn, codify Roe v. Wade into federal law, and permanently legalize the slaughter of unborn children in all 50 states. 
If you vote for that as a Christian, or then you have blood on your hands. If you refrain to vote against that, because I'm a whole life proponent and universal health care and a minimum living minimum wage is actually morally equivalent to stopping the slaughter of a million babies a year, then you also have blood on your hands because you know the right thing to do, but you're failing to do what the scripture says. That's our civic duty is to pick the lesser of two evils and to use our vote. And we're going to give an account to God for what we did, whether good or bad, what we did to stop the slaughter, the greatest slaughter of innocent human beings in world history. Christian, if you want to know how God feels about abortion, it's how he feels about child sacrifice in the Old Testament. Go read how God feels about child sacrifice when he says, it never entered my mind that you would do this, that the Israelites would sacrifice their children on the burning, heated up hands of pagan deities. Abortion is wrong for the same reasons. They're simply sacrificed to improve our lives. They're sacrificed on the pagan deities of convenience, career well-being, education, and money. This is my last question for our progressive brothers and sisters and a question you can use for these pro-life evangelicals for Biden types, okay? Would you have voted to protect Mary's right to abort Christ? Because you know the healthcare access and minimum wage of Pharisees had to be equally weighed in your mind before you went to the polls. What if Roe versus Wade existed in the first century, okay? What if you were a pro-life evangelical for Biden in the first century and it was legal to kill pre-born children then? Should Mary have had the fundamental right to abort the creator of the universe in her womb because you're not a single issue voter and you had to vote for the party that was promising to include better health care options and and increase the minimum wage of Pharisees who are very important because they're taking care of the soul care and spiritual condition of God's people. That would be deeply immoral and disgusting. If all babies are created in the image of God and God was once a fetus, then unborn children are created in the image of God because they're created in the image of the prenatal Christ. And you have a spiritual duty, responsibility, and civic duty to vote in such a way that honors God and protects his most vulnerable unborn children. All right, well, that's all we have time for for today. I got on quite the soapbox, but I think this is very important because this election will be the most important election to the unborn. And for us, probably the most important election since the 1850s. Thanks for joining me today. Head on over to iTunes and YouTube. Give the show a rating and review. And let us know what you think. It helps us reach more people. If you want to learn more and engage with me online, head on over to my website, sethgruber.com, S-E-T-H-G-R-U-B as in baby boy, E-R.com for training videos, my speaking schedule, and to sign up for my newsletter to get free pro-life training delivered to your inbox. Until next week, I'm Seth Gruber, and this is Unaborted. (laughs) 